So everybody has um, a story of rejection, like whether it's a, a girl or a guy who told you no thank you, or maybe it's um, a, a job that you got passed over for, or it's a, a team that you got cut from. Everybody's got a, multiple rejection stories, if we're being honest with each other. So here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to catch your breath for just a second, because you're going to have to be honest. And I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, and I want you to lean over to the person next to you, and I want you to tell them your worst, funniest, most embarrassing rejection story. Are you ready? Yeah? Yeah, you're ready. I know, I can tell. There's a lot of energy in the room today. We're ready to go, right? Ready, set, go. Some of you might need to keep in mind that your spouse is nearby, like, you know, just maybe remember that. All right, all right. So everybody's back with me now. We're all good. Nobody's mad at anybody. Cool. I thought, I thought about this long and hard, and I could have told you about the time I got cut from the sixth grade basketball team, and I've never played organized basketball again, or, or I could tell you the multiple heartbreak stories or the multiple times that jobs rejected me when I was a kid or whatever, but I settled on this one because this might be the most embarrassing public rejection I ever had, and there was this girl in my sixth grade class who, for the sake of this story, we'll call her uh, Brandy, and um, <clears throat> I thought she was pretty cute, and so in my best sixth grade ways, I wrote her a note, and I used some real flowery language, and I told her how pretty and cute and all those things that I thought she was. I never had talked to her because it was sixth grade, like, I didn't, I don't know, and so I, I decided the best thing to do, my smoothest move was going to be to write the note and then leave it on top of her books underneath her chair, and so I left it on top of her books underneath her chair, and in the middle of class, she reached under to get a book, and she saw the note, and I was nervous. I was really nervous because this is back before cell phones, like some of you don't understand this, before cell phones and you would just text girls, you had to write them a note, and at the bottom of every note, you had to ask the question, right? And the question was, do you like me? Check yes or no. Nope, no one else did that. Cool, like, I'm the only one. All right, so we had to check yes or no, and then they'd pass it back. However, Brandy went with what we'll call the third option, okay? So she reads the note, and I'm like shaking, nervous in the back of the classroom. Like, I'm watching her read it. And I'm like, she's falling for every single one of these lines. This is working like a charm. I'm sweating. I'm shaking. The teacher's teaching. I don't know what she's saying. And all of a sudden, she gets to the bottom, and she sees, sincerely, Ben, P.S., do you like me? Check yes or no. And she goes, ooh, gross, and crumples the note up and throws it in the trash can. And that wasn't one of the options on the note. Um, and I got a little bit embarrassed, and I might or might not have run to the restroom, and I might or might not have cried and tried to go home early for the day. Those are vague memories that I tried to stuff in a closet somewhere. But, but you all have a rejection story similar to that one. I know there's at least one dude in the room right now who's going, I don't have any stories like that. Not me. I've never been rejected. I'm here to tell you a secret. You have been, but we all know that you have a really fragile ego, 
And so when we reject, when people reject you, they just don't tell you. <laughs> like, they just kind of like slide this way and hope you never find out because they know you're real fragile, okay? So <laughs> you'll find out about it later, all right? Um, but he, so here's the thing, right? Everybody has a rejection story, right? You've all been rejected. You've got somebody else got, got the promotion that you got passed over for. Somebody else had the friend group that you thought you put together the girl said no to you, and she took somebody else to prom. My favorite comedian, Jim Gaffigan, has a great line about taking girl, asking girls on a date. He said, it's extra embarrassing when you think about it, because when you ask a girl on a date, you're basically, and they tell you no, they're basically telling you, I dislike you so much, I don't even want to eat a free meal in front of you. Right? Like, that's how hard it is to get rejected sometimes. But rejection, like, the reality of it is, is that it hurts, right? When people tell you no, when people say no thanks, it hurts. Rejection, no matter who you are, hurts. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln ran for, this, or for the U.S. Senate from the, state of, or from the state of Illinois, and he lost to a guy named Stephen Douglas. And a reporter asked Abraham Lincoln, how do you feel? And he said, I feel like the boy who stubbed his toe. He said, I know I'm too big to cry. And he said, but I'm too hurt to laugh. Because rejection, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how mature you might be, when someone tells you no, it hurts. And so what happens if you're a normal person is when you've been rejected enough or when you're familiar enough with where you get rejected is you just start staying away from those places, right? When you know what's going to happen, when you know who's going to say no, when you know how it's going to go, when you start to get familiar, you just start to avoid the places that are going to tell you no. And so you start to get comfortable with where you are and the people with who you know and the things that you know are going to say yes and the things that you know are going to work out for you. And if you never ask the people who you think are going to say no, then you never have to worry about who's going to say no. But the problem comes with that is that we're not allowed to be comfortable. It's not within us as people who follow Jesus to be comfortable and to be okay with avoiding rejection. You see, all summer we've been talking about the endless summer, and we've been talking about how important it is for us to realize that, yeah, it's summer and attendance is down and some people are missing, but it's more important for us to realize that some regular people are missing, but there's a whole lot of people who aren't here because we've never invited them here. And what if we spent the summer working on the fact that there are people we are building relationships with to invite them into church, to talk to them about Jesus? And what if we made sure that we understood that within a 20-mile radius of this building, there are 50,000 people who don't know who Jesus is? And what if we started making sure that we did everything it took to invite them to follow Jesus with us? And I want to tell you something that we've talked about all summer as we talk through this. And this is a hard truth to understand, but I want you to hear it. And I want you to know that trying to reach 50,000 people who don't know Jesus will lead to us being rejected at times. It's just the simple fact of the matter that trying to reach 50,000 people who don't know Jesus will lead to us being rejected at times. 
That when we invite people to church, when we invite people in to follow Jesus with us, when we invite people to know about the gospel, when we invite people to follow the Jesus that we follow, there are going to be people who laugh at us. There are going to be people who tell us no. There are going to be people who tell us yes, but never actually do anything about it. The simple fact of the matter is, is that following Jesus and asking other people to do the same will cause us to lose status, will cause us to probably lose relationships, will cause us to lose some things that we used to think were important. And I know on a deeply personal level that that's scary because I know how comfortable it is to be in that zone when everything's okay and you know that no one's going to tell you no and when everything's okay and everyone who's around you likes you and thinks like you do. And I know how nice that is, but the simple fact of the matter is is that 50,000 people need us to not be comfortable and need us to be reaching out to them and sharing Jesus with them and being willing to risk the rejection to share Jesus and to share the life that he promises. Even when we know at times we are going to be rejected. Jesus himself came to earth in the form of a a man. He was fully man and fully God. And time and time again, Jesus was rejected. There are multiple stories from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus' life about people who rejected Jesus. There are people who walked away. There are people who turned him in. There are people who were traitors. There are people who tried to kill him. There are people who successfully killed him. There are people who wanted to reject Jesus from the word go. There's one story in particular that I want to look at with you today. It's in Luke chapter 17, if you want to turn there in your Bible, or I encourage you to get out your phone and open the Bible app or or online. Open up to Luke chapter 17. I want to give you a warning, though, because we talk about this a lot. When we read stories about Jesus, one of the things I tell you is be wary of putting yourself in the place of Jesus, right? Like, don't read the story and be like, hey, I'm Jesus here, because that's when the lightning strikes, you know? Like, we're not Jesus but in the case of this story, I, wanna, I want us to kind of be able to put ourselves in the place of Jesus because this is the, where we're talking about the rejection. Because Jesus is going to meet some guys who need what Jesus has to offer. And so in the case of this story, we are the, we are the ones who, who represent Jesus. We're the ones who are meeting people who, ha, who know what Jesus has to offer, what other people need. But it's not going to end like a fairy tale. It's a different kind of story than what you think. But it starts in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, and it says this. It says, Now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And so Jesus is walking down the road, and he hears from a distance these people calling out his name, saying, please, please help us. And he knows who they are. Jesus knows who they are because their houses were set off far enough from the road that everyone would have known who they were. Everyone knew who they were because their houses were set out far enough from town that it was plainly obvious that this wasn't a normal neighborhood, that the houses these guys lived in was a leper colony. 
You see, in, in the time when Jesus is walking the earth, the most dangerous, deadly disease you can have is leprosy. And leprosy wasn't just like a thing you had and you got sick from. Leprosy was painful. And so if you got the first sign of leprosy, the first thing that the priest, who also kind of acted as the doctor did, is he sent you out of town to the leper colony. And it's out of town far enough that no one can catch it through the air. It's out of town far enough that you can't bump into anybody by accident. It's far enough off the road that you don't have to travel by anybody. So when you walked by a leper colony, you knew what you were walking by. So when Jesus walks by and they see him and they hear and he hears them, he knows who it is calling out to him. He knows that it's some people who are in such pain that there are records of them shattering pots and just scraping the, the boils off of their skin, doing everything they can to try and relieve the pain they're in, even if just for a moment, because they have this flesh-eating disease that eventually is going to end their life. Because they have this pain. Because they have this sickness. Maybe if it was 2017, what it would have been is a, a house where a heroin dealer lives. Maybe if it was 2017, it would have been a transgender neighborhood where everyone would have put them off to the side and said, we don't want to be around them. But Jesus would have heard them calling out and saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, please. Everyone else has cast us aside. Have mercy on us. And so Jesus sees them. And he takes the un unusual step of having compassion. And he walks towards them and, and he sees these ten men. And when he saw them in verse 14, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went towards the priests, they were cleansed. I mean, these men knew rejection, right? They knew that they had been in the bottom of the barrel for as long of their life as they could remember. They knew the pain. They knew the sorrow. They knew the turmoil. They knew the circumstances that they had been in. And now, all of the sudden, their lives were changed. Ten of them were, went from lepers to guys who just started walking and the boils fell away and their skin was clean and the pain was gone. They went from having the most contagious, the most feared, the most dangerous disease of their time to being completely clean and completely healed like that. And they knew who did it. Jesus is the one who just spoke and the disease fell away. I, I often wonder, like, do you think they ever stopped to think, why, why did he do that? Why did, he, why did he heal them? Because you have to think to yourself, and I know that we've asked this question ourselves, if Jesus has the power to heal every disease, why doesn't Jesus just heal every disease? Right? If he's on earth in that moment and he knows every leper is, is an outcast, why doesn't he just heal leprosy in that moment? If Jesus sees the pain that cancer causes us, why doesn't he just cure cancer? If Jesus sees the pain that, that heroin is, is inflicting on the modern day America, why doesn't he just erase heroin? Why doesn't he just cure addicts? It's a question that so many people ask, and, and I think it's a fair question, and I don't think we have time to get into it today, but, but I want you to see in this moment that there's something important for you to understand. 
And it's in this moment for these ten men that he shows them why he's here. Because these ten men have been through hell on earth. And the moment they're clean, the moment they've been cleansed of leprosy, they now know heaven. And they now know from the ends of the torturous soul to the most to the most pain-free bliss you can imagine. And so they start walking towards the priest, but as the boils fall off, as the pain goes away, you can imagine they're now sprinting to the priest. They used to have to walk through town with their hands in the air shouting, unclean, leper, unclean. But now they're sprinting through town saying, look at me, look at me, I'm healed. Family they haven't seen in years friends they haven't seen in decades, they now can walk up to and say, I'm okay, I'm back, I'm better than ever. They never have to change another thing in their life because they no longer have leprosy. Everything's better because of Jesus. But something interesting happened. As all ten of them went to the priest, Did they turn around and tell Jesus anything? Only one did. Just the one turns around and comes back to Jesus and says, thank you. Nine of them walk away, and from from what we know and from what we understand, nine of them never speak nor see nor hear of Jesus again. But one, one out of the nine comes back and falls at the feet of Jesus and says, thank you. So of the ten men that in that moment that Jesus stepped out of the zone of comfort, in that moment that Jesus stepped out into the leper colony and healed the ten of them, nine of them basically rejected what he had to offer other than what would make them better and walked away. And so here's the lesson that Jesus is teaching us in that moment. And he's teaching us that the one is worth the nine every single time. He's teaching us that there will always be the nine. There will always be the ones who reject us. There will always be the ones who don't listen. There will always be the ones who use and abuse what we have to offer. But they will be worth it because of the one. Because of the one who hears. Because of the 90% who reject us, the 10% will return. And I don't want us to miss that point, that there are going to be more people who reject us when we share the gospel than, than people who listen to us. There are going to be more people who tell us no thank you than there ever will be people who want to hear what we have to say. It's just a fact of life. It's a fact of the matter. It's something we have to understand and live through. Check it out right here. It happens in, in, in the next verse, in verse 15. It says, One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, Weren't all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And what is he saying? He's telling them, he's saying, Listen. You can reach 10 people and nine of them might walk away. He says, but there's still one. Because the one 
is worth the nine every single time. Because the one costs ten, right? The one costs a lot. It costs a lot of effort. It costs a lot of energy. It costs a lot of time. As, as I thought this week about, about this message, as we thought about, about the one, I thought about some of the ones. And then I thought about some of the nine. In fact, you could probably even raise the scale a little bit. Another, in another book of, of Jesus' life, in another one of the Gospels, Jesus tells the story of the shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. And he leaves the 99 behind to go and chase the one. And he raises the stakes and says, sometimes it takes 99 to go find the one. But I started thinking about the one versus the nine. And I started thinking about the nine who have told me no over and over again. And I started thinking about some of you and the, and the stories that you've shared with me of your friends and your family who have told you no over and over again. And then I started thinking about some of the ones. And what I wanted to do was call them out by name, but some of them are here and some of them will watch the video. I don't want to embarrass any of them, but, but some of those ones and some of the stories that we have of, of friends of ours who, who, who came to life in, in Christ, some of them who, who came to know Jesus because we didn't give up after the seventh or eighth or ninth rejection because we said the one is worth the nine every single time. But I am going to tell you a story, and I didn't ask for permission to tell this story, so if they're mad at me, they'll have to forgive me because Jesus told them to. But about a year and a half ago, I got a call from a friend of mine named Charlie. And Charlie said, is there water in the baptistry? And I said, always. He said, I have a friend named Punky. And he said, and we've been talking to Punky for a long time about Jesus, and Punky's sick. And he said, I think Punky's finally ready to give his life to Jesus. And he went on to tell me some of Punky's story and some of what he'd been through and some of the hard life that he'd had. And I said, can I come? Can I, can I be there? And he said, of course. And and some of his family was here, and some of his friends were here, and when we had a small ceremony one night, and Charlie walked into the water with Punky, and Punky could barely make it up the steps, and, and, and through the pain of, of, of the cancer and what was going on with Punky, and we, we baptized him, and he, and he came to know Jesus, and, and through the course of the next year and a half, as I got to know Punky, and as he got sicker and sicker, all I knew was that he was a one. Because I know Charlie well enough to know that he wasn't the first person that Charlie had ever talked to about Jesus. And I know Charlie well enough to know that he's not the last person that Charlie talked to about Jesus because he's told me other names too. But I know well enough to know that the other times there were rejections and the other times there were no, it wasn't the end of the story. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the, the seventh or eighth rejection that Charlie got that stopped him because he refused to give up. And there probably were conversations with Punky along the way that ended in a not right now or a no thank you or maybe some other time. But here's why that story matters to me so much. The story matters because as I got to know Punky over the last year and a half, the cancer never went away. And it spread from his kidneys to his bones. 
And it didn't matter what the doctors did. It didn't matter what they tried. It didn't matter what else happened. And eventually hospice got called in two weeks ago. So two Thursdays ago, I sat in Punky's house with him, and he could barely breathe, and he couldn't speak. And the house was full of friends and family, and, and people were grieving and crying. But there's something odd to me about that moment, and I, I don't want this to sound callous, but I want you to hear me out. You see, I was in this room a year and a half before when Punky had died. You see, that punky had gone under the water and had been raised up anew. His real name is Rodney, but his name's Punky. And Punky came up. And so that, that Rodney that was laying there in the hospital bed, my heart sank because his family and his friends were hurting. But I knew what was next. And the next night I got a text. And just this week, I stood on this stage and I told 60 or so of his closest friends and families, do not stand at his grave and weep. He is not there. He did not die. Because today, the man who would hobble into church and have to sit in the back row because he couldn't make it any further the man who couldn't shake your hand with his right hand because his right hand was in so much pain from the cancer that he couldn't hardly move it because that man is no longer on this earth. That man is now in heaven. And Charlie won't take any credit for it. But it's because he refused to let the nine times that he was rejected by others. It's because he refused to let the times that he was rejected by so many people in his life because he refused to let that stop him. Because he knew that there are people in his life who need to hear the gospel. And it's because Punky knew that his time on earth was limited. And he was ready to hear. And so here's what I want you to know. Is that there are 50,000 people who live next door to you, who work at the same company as you. There are 50,000 people who go to your school, who drive at your, on your roads, who go to your grocery store, who play golf with you, whatever it is. There are 50,000 people just like Punky. And 50,000 people who don't know Jesus. And some of them will say no. But don't let the nine detract you from the one. Don't let the nine detract you from the one because the one is worth the nine every single time. I told you that Jesus got rejected multiple times. In fact, the night that he was going to be rejected by an entire religious group of leaders, he got rejected by Judas. And that's the night that Judas betrayed him in the garden and he gave him the kiss to give a sign to the religious leaders to say, this is the one you want to arrest. And it's that night that he was arrested. 
And as you think about the one versus the nine, it's amazing to me as you think about how many times he was rejected, that there he was then hanging on the cross. Hanging on the cross. And people are shouting and spitting and screaming. And it's there that he says, Father, forgive them. Because he knows that amongst the hundreds in the crowd, there might be a few. And he knows that the one is worth the nine. And so here in just a moment, as we take up, as we take the bread and we take the cup, realize that we are part of that one. We are part of that nine. We were part of that nine, and now we're part of that one. That he went to the cross for you and for me. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for you and for me.